You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Andersons lived in a lovely clapboard house at the corner of Washington and Maine, a few blocks past the hubbub of stores and businesses where the town settled into private residences for the well-to-do. Beyond the wide front porch, where Mr. and Mrs. Anderson liked to sit in the evenings, the man scooping into his silk tobacco pouch and the woman squinting at her needlework, were the parlor, dining room, and kitchen. Bessie spent most of her time that first floor, chasing after the children, preparing meals, and tidying up. At the top of the staircase were the bedrooms. Maisie and little Raymond shared theirs, and the second washroom. Raymond took a long nap in the afternoon, and Bessie liked to sit in the window seat as he settled into his dreams. She could just make out the top two floors of the Griffin Building, with its white cornices that blazed in the sunlight. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist, John Henry Days, Apex Hides the Hurt, Sag Harbor, and Zone One, the collection of essays, The Colossus of New York, a nonfiction work, The Noble Hustle. His new novel is The Underground Railroad. Thank you for joining me, Colson. Oh, thanks for having me. Some... Once again, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be back. It's always fun. <laughs> As I started this novel, I, I was thinking there are some things that are so huge and so horrific and so strange and unusual and almost ungrockable by us today that there's no really easy way to get to them, to, to convey what they are to us, even if you just tell us plainly what they are. And I, I think that this novel uses just a suku of the fantastic to enable you to unearth a lot of stuff that is not difficult, uh, that makes it much easier to talk about what the Underground Railroad was and what the United States once was and still to a certain extent is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it is hard for a modern person to wrap their head around the brutality of slavery, just the complete depravity of it. And definitely when I was doing the research and reading all these Histories collected in the 1930s um, by the Federal Writers Program. They sent out writers to collect the life histories of former slaves, people who'd been kids or teenagers at the time of the Civil War. And uh, just the you know litany of atrocity uh, is traumatic as a reader, so you can imagine what it was, how traumatic it was for someone who went through it. So while, while, the, while, the, movie, while the book does get a bit fantastic around page 70, I want that first section to be really rooted in reality and make it make the plantation scenes as realistic as I could. I think that, uh, well, that's a great strategy. Um, as with almost any novel of the fantastic, if you root that things in reality, when you bring up the, um, the element of the fantastic in this novel, it seems quite mundane and, in fact, Restrained compared to the rest of what we've just read. Sure, I mean, and I think if I'd written the book five years ago, the Underground Railroad, which is a literal railroad in this book, um, I probably would have spent more time on there. I would have sort of, I think, belabored some of uh, the set pieces a bit more. But it just seemed uh, 
what's going on sort of spoke for itself and I was a little more it seemed being restrained would would fit the material in the end uh, it's not about the train it's about Cora mm-hmm. well I think too for me this book took the root uh, of the classic otherworld journey um, where we meet somebody in the normal world and then they're inducted into this strange existence about which they know nothing and we know nothing and they go through this other world there are different stops there are um, clerks and places and sentries along the way and this kind of other world journey like Alice in Wonderland or in maybe the Odyssey any of these kind of journeys uh, it really enables you to I think externalize a lot of the emotions and a lot of the the fears and the, the strangeness, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that. I guess for me, it's the reverse because the the most hellish part is the first section, and she's walking in. <laughs> she's actually walking out of hell towards the surface, sure, as opposed to you know descending into something. So I guess like you know, I put it in there. You know, I, I think that it's a novel of escape, and that's a novel of, of adventure and. And she goes from state to state and uh, moves north, and each state has its own sort of particular take on American history. You know, it, it seems to fit in with that classic structure of the Odyssey or Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Gulliver's Travels, where a um, a traveler, a journey person, it goes through a series of allegorical trials, uh, one after the other, and slowly gains enlightenment. Uh, is tested, rises to the challenge, moves to the next island slash adventure toward uh, toward the light. So, um, you know, it's funny that we had like the, the inverse idea of it. Yeah, well, I think that too. When I was reading uh, that, when she first uh, meets, uh, when she first goes to the first station, it just seems so much like a crossing of the river Styx. And I guess you're right; it is in reverse. It, it, there, are, she's leaving hell. And the underworld, and heading towards uh, the light. No, I mean that, that you know the the first station in, in, in introduction is you know like like river sticks. I mean it, it's uh, you're entering into a fantastic space, but I think for her nothing can actually outdo the brutality of where she's she's fleeing from. So. <laughs> right. Well, you talked about the the terror of reading that, the terror of trying to write that and orchestrate it must have been greater, I would assume. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I haven't put a, a character through the series of torments that I put Cora and her, her friends through. And so just, so just being mean and cruel on that level day-to-day to your protagonist uh, was hard. Before I started, I think just contemplating it was frightening. Once I started going and yeah, you know, I think I found a nice proportion in the voice of being intimate with the characters, but also a part shaping the material. It was okay, but there was a lot of dread before I started writing, definitely. When you started the book, did you know you were going to uh, orchestrate it with this uh, Sukhona of the Fantastic? Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I had the idea like 16 years ago oh, in the back okay. of my head and would, um, uh, you know, periodically... Revisit it. Am I ready? Not ready. So the structure was there, you know, for a very long time. The actual tenor of each state, each island that she goes to, 
ended up changing before I started writing. And I think, you know, I said that it would have been different a couple of years ago. I think if it had earlier in my career, I would have had the fantastic effects cranked up to 10. And then I reread 100 Years of Solitude before I started writing and loved how Garcia Marquez used his fantastic effects. And so it seemed like, what if I, instead of having it cranked up to Spinal Tappy in 11, I had it on a nice mellow one. And I think having all the fantastic and absurd elements of the book delivered by the narrator in this matter-of-fact tone blended blended into Cora's uh, existence uh, would seem to work. Well, I think, too, what's remarkable as we're reading this, um, that the things we know to be fantastical are really very calm and quiet, and there's nothing too fantastical about them other than the fact that they didn't happen, whereas the things that we suspect are real and know to be real, the real horrors um, that are visited upon Cora all throughout the book, uh, those seem quite fantastic and, and really awful. And one of the things that it's interesting for me is I was constantly found myself wondering what what was invented and what wasn't. And, and that, I think, uh, reflects uh, a kind of scary ignorance about our, our own history. That's- no, sure. I mean, I, I, mean, I am taking uh, various things like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or the various phases of forced sterilization that we've had in this country where you sterilize immigrants, the you know, the so-called feeble-minded people of color so that they don't have more babies and become a burden on society. That wasn't happening in 1850, but I, I'm moving stuff uh, back a couple decades to, you know, create that friction between the real and, and the invented. And um, the book is pretty packed. I mean, it's pretty... It's pretty trim 300 pages, but I do pack a lot of stuff in there, and I think it is natural to not necessarily know like what's real, what's not real. And in calling attention to, say, the bad blood, bad blood experiments in Tuskegee, um, I am trying to raise the profile of uh, certain episodes in our American history that aren't as well known. So it's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh- Early on, you write, uh, in the very opening, you write, uh, these fantasies gave Ajari comfort when her burns were such to splinter her into a thousand pieces. And, uh, you know, our, our alternate histories seem to always be born of pain. And I think that's an interesting notion. Well, I think, you know, in, in this book and Zone 1, my, my last book, which is about a an a, um, apocalypse and people trying to pull themselves together afterwards. There has to be that that sense of hope, mm-hmm. uh, a place that there's a refuge where we can finally find a safe harbor. So in Zone 1, the survivor of the zombie apocalypse is trying to find that last human settlement where people are, are still sane and they're putting things back together. And here, Cora is, of course, trying to escape north, and she has no idea what freedom will look like eventually. She has some vague ideas, but she has to believe that there is that safe berth whether it's in New York or Massachusetts or, or Canada, and this uh, this light of hope that pulls her th- pulls her forward through the swamp and the various dangers she encounters. I you do a great job creating a, a really vivid cast of characters. Uh, uh, Ridgeway, Cora, Caesar—they're all just really memorable and very intense. Uh, when you were writing the novel, did you just start with Cora, and did they kind of 
butt off, butt up off of her, or did the was they already exist at the various stations along the way? Um, no, you know, before I started writing, I, I planned out the supporting cast, and so, and of course, some people become more interesting, interesting or less interesting as you go on. Um, Ridgeway, the slave catcher, I, I couldn't really find his voice until I was halfway through the book. And then when I finally discovered it, I, I was very happy. I, I, plot out the, I plot out the beginning and the end. Uh, the middle can be kind of vague. And then uh, definitely you know, minor characters become bigger, like the, the Dr. Stevens, who originally appeared for two pages, gets his own sort of six-page biographical scene. So yeah, I mean, you have to, while I am sort of controlled and like my outlines, you do have to allow for that you know, magic of discovery as you go along. You know, this book just forces us to look at things that now to us seem incomprehensibly horrific. And I think that's, uh, to, to do that and make it entertaining and also engaging, that takes a, a special kind of magic. And part of that, I think, is down to the prose. There are parts of this prose that seem Shakespearean, King Jamesian, uh, very poetic, and other parts are a little bit more plain spoken. Were you modulating that? I don't know. I guess I started with the chapter of Cora's grandmother, Ajari, compressing her life as a slave to six pages in this sort of biographical sketch. And I, I like I the voice there. So I don't see that much variety in terms of um, the voice changing. I, I think it's. You know, at least to me, it's consistent. But um, it you know, it's not one of my hyperactive modern, postmodern narrators. <laughs> um, the sentences aren't these you know six clause pileups. Uh, I, I think the same way, the fantastic gestures and simplifying it seem to work. Also, having you know a simpler, more realist, more appropriate sentence structure for eighteen fifty seemed the way to go. I- Talk about building this world of the 1850s for us because you have to do it on two levels. On one hand, you're creating uh, the world as it existed, and you start out with that really like vivid scene of, you know, uh, it's a cavalcade of horrors, really, about what Cora's life and what the lives of slaves were like. But then to build into that and thread through that this layer of inventiveness and, and you know, the things you've created. Well, I, I mean, um, you know, that in a few books, The Intuitionist, which takes place with elevator inspectors and how do you make this sort of absurd world of really important elevator inspectors real seem to live on the page. And Zone 1 takes place apocalyptic New York. Even just Sag Harbor, which is a realistic novel, trying to recreate... Uh, a summer in Long Island. You know, you're always, you know, sort of building that world. I think once I, I hit upon the voice and decided that 1850 would, would be my cutoff for slang and technology, it seemed more manageable. I, I think if you're, if I'd made each state take place in a different time, you know, originally the first place she goes, South Carolina, was going to take place in a, uh, you know, far in the future. And so she wasn't just going through going north, she's also traveling through uh, time as well. And it would have been a futuristic society society where they're breeding slaves for different purposes, and some are for manual work and some are for domestic work. And it's 
even just telling it sounds a bit corny, but um, I, I think it sounds very uh, Aldous Huxley. Yeah, it's it's all it's very you know it's sort of sort of been done I think, uh, and in, I think in keeping with say Gulliver's Travels, where mm-hmm. uh, each new island he finds is very very strange. There's even like a flying island. I'm not sure if, how long. Oh yeah, it, yeah, that's really sci-fi, and I think you know placing that book in the tradition of fantastic novels even more firmly, but keeping it straight-faced and um, making sure that Cora and everybody else never sort of breaks into astonishment. You know, like when, she, when she, she's a skyscraper, she's not like, what is that tall structure looming over me? <laughs> you know, that kind of belabored scene setting. Just, you know, just taking every, all the rules of the new world with a straight face uh, seemed to work, go well, a long way. I thought that scene with the skyscraper was really striking. <laughs> to, to me, it was just not like kind of gobsmacking. Well, yeah, it's a 12-story building, and in 1850 there were a few, not in, in South Carolina. But for me, that's like a, you know, a giant signpost in the book that relieving reality and going to this alter reality. And so I was trying to make the Georgia section very realistic, and once I bring her to the Underground Railroad and she comes out, you know, it's, it's also a sign to myself that now I can sort of let it rip and, and have more fun with history and be more peculiar in, in Cora's journey. Well, I think that uh, it, that's one of, I think, the true uh, discoveries of this novel are, are, is that it actually is fun to read. And I mean, even when you're holding up a mirror to us that is fairly terrorizing, I mean, the difference between uh, the America of the 1850s and in many ways the, uh, Germany of the 1930s or 40s is it doesn't seem all that different. No, I mean, um, you know, in, in the North Carolina section, uh, she has to hide in an attic. The government of North Carolina in this book, this alternative history, has decided to abolish black people, and that's their sort of final solution to deal with the slavery question. And I was inspired to have her hide in an attic by um, Harriet Jacobs's slave narrative. She was in North Carolina. When she hits puberty, she's being pursued by her master, and then she hides in an attic for seven years before she can get passage out. And, of course, there's Anne Frank, our other famous um, attic hider. So, um, yeah, so, so why not use the African-American experience to talk about the Jewish experience in, uh, in Germany? Uh, anytime you've taken your demonization of the other to such an insane extreme, you're reaching a, you know, across time and, and cultures. And so it is about the oppression of black people. It is about the persecution of the Jews. It's about... It enlarges the conversation around what Cora is going through, and and so, um, you know, and if I stuck to the historical facts, I would, you know, would wouldn't be able, to, I wouldn't be able to make all those kind of connections. I think so. The fantastic becomes a a way of of uh, broadening the horizons of the book. You know, this struck me, especially. Uh, the way you described some of the the mechanistic uh, aspects of the 
of the civilization, it really reminded me of what you might expect of something that Edgar Allan Poe would have written. Sure. Well, I think he was, you know, trying to bring this new vocabulary of of, of fantasy and science fiction to people who hadn't seen it before. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when you're using slavery in this sort of way, you know, I do have to be careful to uh, not lose people. You know, people can have questions over what's real, what's not real. But I think um, being loyal t- to the experience of, pe- of people who went through that and trying not to, um, not using my usual satirical distancing effects and playing it more straight-faced uh, was important. Yeah, no, I, I think that the straight-faced aspect worked very well. Um because we really did know that, you know, the pretty much what my take was if it if it seemed almost too awful to be believed that the chances were it was true, <laughs> and if it seemed just slightly weird, it was probably invented. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, in the North Carolina section, there's an there's a weekly lynching mm-hmm. of people at the town is caught, uh, and it's. Preceded by music and a minstrel show and fun and games, and then they cap it off with this, you know, ritual slaughter. And, you know, I would think, am I being too over the top? But then I would go back to my research, my research and realize that, no, you know, I wasn't. Lynchings were public performances. You know, you'd bring your kids, sell popcorn, eat cotton candy, and watch, you know, a person get strung up or burnt up. Some of the early po- earliest postcards in America with pictures on them, were lynching photos, you know, people posing before the uh, the body of the the person they'd lynched. And you send it to your family, like, wish you were here, you know, had a great time at this lynching. So, um, so yeah, you're right. If it seems too awful to be true, it probably is true in the book. There is a, a scene in here where... Um, and I think this is, has to is in the part where they're talking about the uh, the town doctors and you know the kind of um, Tuskegee uh, analog. And there's a, a great scene where I'm just reading this and I'm thinking it's a cookbook uh, <laughs> uh, sure. along the lines of, of of the of the famous Damon Knight story. And I I think that you do a such a good well job of like um, creating the hypocrisy uh, that this entire uh, civilization at that time was based on and and without you don't point it out you just I guess describe it and the, the difference is subtle but it's important no I think yeah describe it and let it breathe and live in the reader's consciousness as opposed to belaboring it and, and processing it for them uh, you know definitely I was trying to do that um, talk about uh, creating um, Tennessee because that's a the way when you create that state that's a really interesting state and I like this idea of like dropping this onto one island after another I think that's a really uh, you know we understand it's a great organizing principle for this novel well yeah Tennessee is a um, you know before I started writing it was just a wasteland so it was a completely barren uh, hellish landscape and then uh, the way it turned out in the book, it's there's a huge plague of yellow fever, um, 
and which you know of course there were periodic huge outbreaks of yellow fever there's um great swaths of uh scorched earth from forest fires you know there are various forest fires that you know consumed a million acres so um back then and so I think I want a post-apocalyptic landscape in the book, but then how you do that in 1850? And so I brought in the plague and and the fires and uh, uh, the blackened stumps of the trees, and it, it you know creates a I think a nice stage for Cora's meeting with uh, the slave catcher and their various they don't come up as intellectual arguments, but they are intellectual arguments about I think freedom and uh, and uh, captivity. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about Ridgway, because uh, he's a very interesting character. You said you had difficulty uh, finding his voice. Um, what helped you find his voice? We know that the, the the book doesn't take place in New York. Uh, New York was a big hotbed of abolitionist energy, and so a lot, a lot of lawyers who would spring from jail, runaway slaves who were you know, who'd been caught and were about to be returned to their masters in the South. And there was a big sort of arms race between uh, New York lawyers and, and Southern pro-slavery lawyers. So I read Eric Foner's sort of brief history of the railroad, which uh, is centered around New York. And I think just, you know, I'm always trying to squeeze New York into my books. So once I had a hook for Bridgeway, <laughs> to, an excuse to come to New York, even though it's only a page and a half, he started working for me. And, and he's a, you know, sort of walking env- embodiment of a, you know, white imperialist philosophy. And he has all sorts of justifications for upholding the system and the might of the white man and the inferiority of the the red man and, and the brown man. So he becomes a vehicle for various, it's not even white supremacist, but I think American imperialist energies. And, um, and then also I think you want a, a good villain who's strong enough to to uh, cause trouble for Cora, for Cora. So find exactly how he justified his actions to himself and, and how he carried himself it took a while. And then, you know, I remember the day last fall when I was writing it when I finally figured out that he was a blacksmith's son, uh, that he finally clicked for me. That was a, a really stunningly uh, written scene when you introduced them as the blacksmith's son. Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously uh, the slaves are completely enmeshed in the slave system. But, you know, the, the, the white people, too, the white slave masters who have built up these huge businesses, max themselves out on credit to, uh, you know, expand their, their cotton territory. Uh, they have no excuse but to uphold the slavery system. And then, you know, it goes down to people who keep it running, like Ridgeway, the slave catcher, obviously, um, we need a system in place to keep slaves in line, and that's where Ridgeway comes in. And then it's the the blacksmith. Uh, blacksmiths were um, obviously always essential, but then once uh, the cotton boom starts, you're making wheels for the carts, all the carts that are bringing the cotton to market. You're making the nails for all the houses that are sprouting up in the wilderness to serve the industry. Um, you're making everything, and... Uh, so his father's a blacksmith and, and serving and, and sort of making tools. Ridgeway takes care of the tools in a, in a, different, in a different way. And so just you know, trying to find different ways of showing how everyone's so deeply 
trapped in the system was important. One of the things I think that was, I, it was nice to see things that we recognize before we recognize them, the trail of tears, before you actually call it that in the book. We see it and we think that's the trail of tears. And I think that kind of ability to, to recognize those things in the book, the, the strands of reality, is it's powerful when you see that. You think, oh, my God, this is a really, really terrible, terrible, terrible time. And it lasted for a long time. Well, I mean, in trying to figure out what to focus on, there's no shortage of atrocities to uh, ponder and you know put on the scale. Yeah, people call slavery the original sin. That's sort of a tidy cliche. I think the original sin is the theft of Native American <laughs> Native American land. I, I liked illustrating Cora's sort of slow understanding of American history. She's uneducated, grew up in a plantation, uh, forbidden to learn how to read. And, you know, as she has these adventures, she learns her letters. She becomes wiser about the world, uh, meets different kinds of people, and learns about the country's history. And so having her find connections between uh, all these, these, these terrible moments in American history was important. I think um, let's talk a little bit about Cora because the at the very beginning we get this wonderful kind of evocation of her grandmother and then her mother, then then Cora. That that's an interesting strategy. What led you to take that strategy? Well, I think in in, in previous books, were you referring to kind the of, shorter chapter, yeah, shorter biographical chapters? Yeah, this yeah you start kind of like it's rather than just hand us Cora, you give us kind of uh, almost a big book called Begat kind of sequence. Sure, yes. I mean, I, I wanted um, an introduction or overture to slavery before Cora comes, and so mm-hmm. that became the six-page prologue slash opening section of Cora's grandmother, Ajari, as she's abducted in Africa, brought to the Americas, and you know her being sold to various plantations. So I wanted Cora's grandmother to do a lot of work in terms of setting up just the the brutal world of slavery before we get to Cora. And then those shorter chapters became a way of addressing different parts of history that I couldn't get, that weren't realistic to have Cora interact with. And so she meets a doctor in South Carolina, Dr. Stevens, who's sterilizing people for their own good. But they only meet briefly and it wouldn't make sense for Cora to have all this information about Dr. Stevens' life and his justifications. And so he got his own six-page section detailing uh, his work in, in medical school and uh, various things. And so, you know, in, in, in previous books like John Henry Days, I've had chapters that are aside, off to the side from the, from the main narrative, and they comment and have friction with the main story. And here, you know, there's, there's a handful of them, and I, and I think they just broaden our idea of the kind of world Cora is going through. They're like uh, chapter-length footnotes almost. Surely, yeah, surely, yes. Um, and, you know, and, and self-contained and hopefully have, you know, sort of mini arcs within uh, Cora's larger story. Story. Um, Cora is such an interesting character. Uh, talk about creating her and choosing her to carry this story for you. That's a, that's a big, this is a big story, 
it has a lot of stuff that's going to happen to that character. You require a strong character. Right, yeah. I, mean, well, I think you know, the bravery it takes to take that first step off the plantation is, is uh, immense. Most people didn't have that courage or you know, didn't have the vision, the hopeful vision that there's a safe place out there. So what kind of person does have that courage? Uh, they've been born into such a terrible system and have had no sort of outlet for that courage. You know, so early on, you know, I give her two, I think, moments that define who she is. One, when she, you know, she has a, a garden that she's inherited from her mother and grandmother and some new slaves who come on the plantation uh, want to take it from her. You know, none of them have anything. So even a three-foot-by-three-foot three garden is a, um, a, a huge treasure. And she stands up to that, that first encroachment, and I think that's a, a big moment for me in defining her. And then in terms of saying the plot in motion, and it is, a, you know, for me, a much more plot-heavy book than, say, Sag Harbor, which has no, no plot. Um, so where's the moment where she can't go back to her former life? And it's where she protects a boy named Chester, who's 10, from being beaten by their master. And she puts herself in as a human shield to... Uh, protect him from the blows and you know all, all the people on the plantation have seen people beaten you know perhaps daily they've been beaten and they don't step up because how can you I mean you know it's sort of useless so what kind of person does step up you know that one that one in a million time when they witness this uh, so that's Cora and you know I think why those two scenes pretty early uh, you know gave me a real handle on her character I think it's uh, important that, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, that uh, the slaves were not only not permitted to read, they weren't allowed to read. They could be punished for even looking at Well, yeah, words. it was against the law. I mean, you don't, you don't want the people you abused and, subject, and subjugated to actually learn about the world and, and get ideas that they could better themselves. So, yes, you could be you know, severely beaten for learning how to read, uh, masters were actually, you know, in some states at the height of the slavery boom, uh, you could be fined and jailed for teaching a slave to read. The power structure had a very strong interest in keeping black people in the dark. I, I think that um, there's always something happening. I mean, this is a very densely plotted book. There's, there's not a, a moment. She's pretty much on the run from, from the get-go. Uh, did you have to take a lot out? Nope. <laughs> uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't take a lot out. You know, from, from the beginning, I knew it was going to be sort of leaner and more direct than some of my other books. And, and it is an adventure story, and, and an adventure story hums along. And in terms of how I wanted to deal with history, not over-explain or hit the reader on the head, it makes for a, a, a fleet and efficient read, I think. And, you know... Well, that's an interesting approach, I mean, because you want to... And I think a, a, actually a really effective one because you, by writing a ripping yarn about the America's darkest moment, uh, you make it more comprehensible, more accessible, and uh, the emotional impact is greater. Well, yeah, I think the, the pleasures of a good science fiction movie or a or book or a crime novel 
is the excitement and, and suspense. And there's mm-hmm. what's more, what higher stakes? You know, hunting the Maltese falcon is one thing. Running for your life is another. And so, you know, the stakes just from the outset are, are, are so incredibly high. And, you know, it is, and it is, you know, interesting to write a plot-heavy book, a, a, not, a book that's not plot-heavy, and see what sort of works and what doesn't work and how these different, two different kinds of um, forms work. So, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I usually have a, a file of, like, paragraphs I take out. Everything I, I want to say is sort of in there, and um, then the structure accommodated it. Has it been picked up for a movie? Uh, Talking... Talking to some people, you know. So, <laughs> so no. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I'm, no. I've asked this question ten thousand. No, times. it's just like a, you know, I just sound like a, a jerk. Uh, but there's, there's 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 been some interest. You know, never really pans out. So we'll see. But some some, some talented folks have have uh, taken a shine to it. So we'll see. I, I mean, this seems like it would make a fantastic miniseries. I mean, just, yeah, I think it's, could... it's too. Just, too much to be explained for like a movie, but you know, a, a short TV series I think would serve the story well. Yeah, yeah, ten, ten or twelve episodes, you could get it plunged into the world. As we read this novel, one of the things I think that's really interesting is that this idea of uh, fantasy and and fantastic, because as you write, the newspapers like to impress the fantasy of the happy plantation, the contented slave who sang and danced and loved Massa. I mean, so in that single sentence, you do such a great job of explaining the need, both the presence of fantasy as a problem and also the need for fantasy to uh, get at the root of reality. Well, you know, I mean, it's, there's a propaganda war mm-hmm. uh, being waged. The South is putting out in you know, newspapers that maintain this elaborate fiction that, for one thing, Africans can't think for themselves, and so they need this paternalistic structure. And then, two, that they're actually happy. You know, they have food, they have clothes, and it was echoed by, you know, Bill O'Reilly recently. Uh, Michelle Obama gave a speech at the Democratic Convention and expressed wonder at how wonderfully strange it is that she, uh, a black woman, is the first lady and lives in a, the White House that was built by slaves. And people were, were outraged for some reason. It's just a histor- historical fact. But Bill O'Reilly was like, <laughs> whose books are, whose historical books are you know, notoriously filled with errors, said, well, it is true that slaves did build the White House. They were treated well and... Uh, <laughs> we're well clothed, and you know, what I mean, um, and on the one hand, you know, who wants to ponder that their great 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 grandfather, you know, beats, beat, raped, and abused uh, the human beings he used to own 150 years ago? So yes, you have to have this. You have to have this lie that you tell yourself in order to not realize what a monster you are. So it was true then, and it's true now. And then um, in terms of the propaganda war, you know, uh, slave narratives were political tracts. They were there to educate the public about the terrors of slavery. Um, and so if you get someone like Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs to tell their story, get it down, print it, and have it disseminated, you can wake people up about, uh, you know, the true brutality of the slave system. And um, so on the one hand, you have this incredibly elaborate fiction about why slavery is good for Africans 
and then you have the you know the the counter war the you know the the actual facts of the case trying to uh, counteract that. Did you when talk about you know creating the stories in this book because this is a very dense this book is chock a block with story and narrative and and arcs and very carefully intertwined one after the other. It, it's rococo, I guess, in its uh, creation. Uh, I think that's an. I mean, I think that's part of your point here in that um, Cora's drive for narrative is what carries her through out of the horror. You know, basically, the book is being rebooted every sixty pages as we go to a new state mm-hmm. slash island, and so they're not short stories, but they you know do have a, a complete arc in terms of her experience on and off the plantation, and so. Um, you know, just as a writer, I got into the, you know, there's a beginning, middle, and end of each section. And just where I am in the story is telling me how I'm telling it. Am I wrapping things up? Am I setting things up for the next movement? Am I uh, closing this movement? And so, um, you know, once I got, you know, the first Georgia section down, the sort of rhythm of each section, you know, became apparent and was a good, you know, organizing principle. It sounds like this was... Uh, dare I say, was this fun to write? It was fun, you know, once I got her out of the ground and into South Carolina mm-hmm. and was going to start um, building the sort of larger philosophical structures of the book. It was nice to discover people like Dr. Stevens and, and Ridgeway, Mabel, Cora's mother, and figure out where, the, where, where their stories fit into the book and what to tell, what not to tell. I think I felt really confident about the book around that section I read. You know, once she comes up and gets this job in this the Anderson's house and is has an assumed identity. For a couple of pages, you're not sure who this Bessie is, and it's Cora in her her new uh, uh, disguise. Yeah, you know, I just get to be more inventive and creative and have. I mean, the word is fun, um, even though you're dealing with very grim material. You know, the real pleasure of of setting a world in motion and then sort of kicking it around, deforming it. I think that uh, combination of this adventure plot structure and you know makes a nice place for you to very easily weave in the more the philosophical lot uh, and logical arguments. Well I think yeah I think yeah once I have the pacing down, you know, it's sort of apparent like uh, how long the scene's gonna go or not go, um, just because I have found the rhythm of 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 the story, belaboring a point or taking too long, uh, you know the story is telling you to uh, keep it going. You know, keep a consistent tone. Talk about creating Caesar. Uh, Caesar is a well, you know, uh, you know, in picking my supporting cast, I'm I'm trying to just illuminate different kinds of Black Americans, White Americans. So Caesar uh, represents one kind of slavery. Uh, the small family farm kind. So he's in Virginia with his mother and father. They're owned by a kindly old widow who teaches him how to read and and promises that once she dies, she'll uh, grant them freedom, uh, which happened a lot. What also happened a lot is that, you know, one's relatives after you die don't necessarily care about your wishes. And so he sold along with like, the dining room furniture and the widow's other possessions, sold down south 
uh, which is uh, you know, the journey underground you're referring to. Uh, the further south you go, the more barbaric the slavery system is, and you never want to be sold down south. So he's separated from his parents, never sees him again, and ends up on the plantation with Cora. And it's he that he sees a, you know, a kindred spirit in Cora, someone who's up to the task of running away and uh, inducts her into his scheme of escape. I love the station agents as we meet them. They are so, they're really engaging. Uh, talk about uh, creating them. Uh, Ethel and, and her husband and, and all these people with these farms dug out. I think this is a really interesting uh, scenario. Well, I, yeah, you want to, um, uh, you know, I was trying to have a, each station have a different flavor and some are, you know, sort of rough hewn, some are, elaborately decorated with nice tiles and when you arrive there's like food uh there waiting for you so having different kinds of kinds of trains and stations and, and station agents you know i think is, is important to uh the rhythm of the book Cora never knows like what she's going to find when she goes down into the station or what kind of world she's going to emerge from so um uh so you know it's a merry band of eccentric types some uh, very enthusiastic about uh, fighting slavery and others a bit more reluctant. Uh, this book has been praised by everyone from Oprah Winfrey to Barack Obama. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, what What's your follow-up act? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I mean, there's been a nice uh, uh, constellation there's been a nice convergence of different forces with this book in terms of how people are reacting to it and uh, the critics and then the um, very big figures who have, you know, said nice things about it. And it doesn't really happen with every book. This is my eighth book, and I know that uh, I know to savor it because next time out, you're starting from scratch. So my next book uh, takes place in Harlem in New York in the 1960s. It's realistic and, um, you know, probably very different in tone from this book. Uh, so, you know, uh, the book, you know, you write the book and then you start over again with really, another idea. I really like that idea of, uh, you reboot yourself every time around, don't you? Yeah, well, I'm definitely sick of, you know, whatever structure or voice I was playing <laughs> with, whether it's first person or third person. So, um, uh, the last book, you know, it was just full of jokes and was very fun to write, uh, and there's, you know, maybe two jokes in this book. So, you know, um, coming up with an antidote to my last excursion is always important to me. I've been speaking with Colson Whitehead. His new book is The Underground Railroad. Thank you for joining me, Colson. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.